sin, our Savior, our salvation. When you have 14 grandchildren, you end up uh, doing grandparent duty uh, quite a bit. And a couple weeks ago, uh, I was uh, transporting a couple of my grandsons to a basketball game or a basketball contest that they were going to be in. This was not uh, the type of basketball contest where you know who's on your team and you go there and you know who, who's on your team and you know who's on the other team. This is kind of a fruit basket turnover type situation where all the kids get there and then they use some arbitrary method and uh, they end up putting some kids on one team and other kids on another team. And you never really know who you're going to be uh, playing against. And I was, I was listening to my six-year-old grandson. He said, oh, I hope Jimmy is on my team. I don't want to burst Jimmy. Now, as a former English teacher, always vigilant, always on the uh, outlook of um, nouns that turn into verbs and other uh, disasters um, and misuses of the English language, I said, whoa, 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 what do you mean you don't want to verse Jimmy? And the, my grandson, totally missing my point, said, uh, I don't want to verse Jimmy because he's just too good. And my, I had two other grandsons in the car, and they helped me learn that this use of the word verse now is a shortened version of the word versus. I did not know this. And uh, suddenly my understanding of my grandson's comment uh, came into focus. It made sense. He didn't want to verse Jimmy because Jimmy was just too good. Uh, evidently, Jimmy's a worthy opponent, and we want him on our side. Now, today's message is entitled, Our Sin Versus the Savior. But it very well could be, Our Sin Versus the Savior. Because he's just too good. And we want to be on his side. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that we're going to look at. Lord, please forgive me for not doing this passage of Scripture the justice that it deserves. And yet, Lord, I humbly ask that you would use uh, my efforts to be your spokesman and that you would use my words on your behalf to help us understand the true magnificence of our Savior verse the true horribleness of our sin. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Isaiah chapter 59. If uh, you will turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 59, when, when Ken Kangas and I were working diligently to put this sermon series together uh, many, many months ago now, uh, one of the most intimidating things when you come to a book like Isaiah is what do you what do you group together what do you emphasize what do you kind of sort of move past and we put Isaiah 59 Isaiah 60 and 61 in one sermon and I'm just going to tell you Ken right now we might have blown it <laughs> because there is so much here and uh, so we're going to take a whirlwind tour please forgive me we're going to move quickly through Isaiah 59 
briefly mention Isaiah 60 and then concentrate a little bit on 61. There's a beautiful passage that I want you to see there. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 2 now. Hear the word of the Lord. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and His ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not listen. This is the word of the Lord. First thing I want you to see about our sin, and when I say our sin, I'm talking corporately, but I also want you to hear your sin. But the first point I would say about our sin is that our sin separates. If you're a Christian and you don't have your prayers answered, it could be because your iniquities have separated you from your God. It could be that your sins have hidden His face from you. It could be that your sins have caused Him to not listen to you. The problem of unanswered prayer has nothing to do with God, His power, His strength, His love for you, nothing. The problem of unanswered prayer is on us, our sins. The Lord is not weak. The Lord's arm is mighty to save. That's a rhetorical question. Is the Lord's arm too weak to save? No, it's not. And the Lord, is He hard of hearing? No, that's a rhetorical question. He can hear you. As I advance in age and as I continue to listen to my music too loud, as Rhonda tells me on a regular basis, as she reminds me, and she's reminding me because so often now she'll say something and I'll say, I, I didn't quite catch that. Would you repeat that? And you know, the Lord doesn't have that problem. The Lord can hear you. The problem of unanswered prayer is because of us and our sin. Verse 2 says, but your iniquities are separating you from God. And your sin has hidden His face from you so that He does not listen. Sin is the great separator. Your sin separates you from your loved ones. Your sin separates you from your friends. Your sin separates you from your family. Your sin separated you from your Creator. And eventually your sin will separate you from life. For the wages of sin is death. So the first thing I would say about our sin is that our sin separates. But I'd also say that our sin silences. Verse 2 says, Your sins have hidden its face from you so that he does not listen. Sin and the separation that it brings makes honest and good communication next to impossible. When we have sin in our lives, God's face is hidden from us. He doesn't listen to our prayers. And His voice goes silent. Have you ever been in a conversation when one side of the conversation, the person that you're talking to, just drops out? I have sprint, so this happens all the time. <laughs> there are people in this audience who can testify that we have been having conversation and all of a sudden, 
You're just talking into the air. And when you eventually reconnect, you have to figure out where was I? What did I say? How many words did I waste? That's what sin is. Sin is a silencer. When there's sin in your life and you're talking to God, you might as well be on your cell phone going through one of those dead patches. You might as well be talking to yourself. Your sin separates. Your sin silences. One of our relatives, um, at some point in the distant past, at some point, one of our relatives just walked out of our lives, just disappeared. We had no idea. Uh, it's probably my fault. I think I'm stepping on the cord or something. I'm sorry about the, the problem there. I'll try to be still. Good luck with that. Uh, I was uh, saying that one of our relatives just he just disappeared. It was so strange. We didn't know if he was dead. We didn't know if he was alive. He was gone. I think he was gone for over 10 years. We did not hear a single word from him during this time period. During this time of separation, all communication with him was broken off. There was no communication. There was no dialogue. And then one day he came back. And after he came back, uh, during family reunions, if this family member was in the room and he left the room for any reason, any reason at all, those of us who had lived through that time of separation and suffered through that 10 years of silence would exchange glances with each other. And you got to know my family. Someone would say, well, I wonder how long he'll be gone this time. (laughs) Or one of us might say, did you get a good look at him? Because he might look a little different the next time you see him. Is it funny? No. It's kind of tragic. But that's exactly what our sin does to us. It separates us from the people that love us. It separates us from a God who loves us. And this is what your sin does. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, hey, I got it. I'm good. Sin's not a problem in my life. I hope you're not I hope you're not saying that. I hope you're not thinking that. Because that sin is ever with us. It cuts us off from the ones we love and the one who loves us the most. Our sin separates. Our sin silences. And I want you to know too that if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I got this. Hey, we just had that time of confession. I'm good. I also want you to know that our sin is subtle. Verse 4 of Isaiah 59 says, No one makes claims justly. No one pleads honestly. Listen to this. They trust in empty and worthless words. They conceive trouble and give birth to iniquity. Sin is so subtle. It will fool you. The problem with being deceived is that you don't know you're being deceived. Just ask Eve in the Garden of Eden. Paul very clearly says that Eve was deceived. Some translations of uh, the account of the fall say that the serpent was more subtle than any other beast of the field. Our sin is so subtle. Ravi Zacharias says sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. 
our sin. Our sin separates, our sin silences, our sin is subtle, and our sin makes us stumble. Verses 9 and 10, therefore justice, here's the conclusion, therefore, because of our sin, therefore justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. We hope for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, we live in the night. We grope along the wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We stumble at noon as though it were twilight. We are like the dead among those who are healthy. Our, our sin. We don't have straight paths in our life. We have paths that we stumble on because of our sin. Our sin separates, it silences, it settles, and it trips us up. It causes us to stumble. My first uh, missionary trip to Romania, it was a long trip to get there, and we were tired, but when we got there, Brother Ken Polk uh, wanted us to go to uh, Timisoara that night and visit Revolution Square, where uh, the revolution in Romania actually broke out, and it was, um, it was a good night to be out there. And as we were walking across that plaza where so much blood had been shed, it was, um, we would look up at one side and we would see the, the place where the dictator Ceausescu gave the speech that kind of triggered that part of the revolution. We look over at the other side and we see the church where the people ran to in the hopes that uh, the soldiers would stop shooting. And uh, many of them died on the steps of that church. And so we're looking around. We're walking through Revolution Square. We're looking at everything. It's dark. It's not well lit. And Brother Ken stepped into a place that was under repair. And he stumbled and he rolled. And Brother Ken's a big guy. And so we're all just trying to get out of the way. Because when a big man stumbles, there can be a lot of collateral damage. And you know, that's what, that's what sin is. Sin's going to make you stumble. I'll never forget on um, the day before Tiffany's wedding, uh, I was at the church hanging decorations. Not a good thing. Uh, you should know right now that this story might not end well. Um, but I was on a ladder. And so now the story gets even more interesting for those of you who have seen me on a ladder. And by the way, Rhonda has banned me from ladders for life. Uh, she's a smart woman. And uh, Weston's back there. Weston can testify. Weston never wants to see me on a ladder again. But on that particular day, I was adjusting the wreath on top of the Christmas tree because Tiffany got married near Christmas and um, got it the way I thought it was supposed to be. And I was coming down the ladder and I thought I was on the last step, but I wasn't. There was one more step. And I went down hard. That's sin right there. That's what sin will do to you. You think you're sure-footed. You think you know where you're going, but it's going to trip you up. Look back now at Isaiah 59, verses 14 through 21. And really, Isaiah 59, verses 2 through 14, is just a list of, a dreadful list of sins, our sins. Sins impact on ourselves personally, but also on our nature. And let's pick up now and see what the list of sins, how it concludes. Verse 14, justice is turned back 
Righteousness stands far off, for truth has stumbled in the public square, and honesty cannot enter. Truth is missing, and whoever turns from evil is plundered. The law, the Lord saw that there was no justice, and he was offended. He saw that there was no man. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. Now remember, there's nothing wrong with the Lord's eyes or the Lord's ears or the Lord's arm. It is still mighty to save. And the Lord sees that there was no one standing up for His people. There was no one interceding. Second half of verse 16. So His own arm brought salvation. And His own righteousness supported Him. He put on righteousness His body armor. A helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And He wrapped Himself in zeal as in a cloak. So He will repay according to their deeds. Fury to His enemy. Retribution to His foes. And He will repay the coasts and the islands. They will fear the name of the Lord in the west. And His glory in the east. Or he will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord. Well, this is a wonderful change of pace. We've been talking about our sin and our inability to save ourselves. We are like dead men walking amongst the healthy. We are like blind men groping along the wall. And there's some good news here. How will God change the story? How will he change the narrative? This is how he does it. He enters the story. He clothes Himself in righteousness. He takes on the helmet of salvation. Verse 20, The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. This is the Lord's declaration. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My Spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, we were talking about our sin, but now this passage has shifted to a conversation about our Savior because our Savior has entered the story. He's saving the story. Verse 20 says, the Savior will come to Zion, Jerusalem. And He did. The second half of verse 20 says, the Savior will come to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. And He did that. I will remind you that Jesus came. He spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. And He came to those who repented of their sins. That would be His disciples. And then verse 21, so interesting. Because the scripture says the Spirit will be on and in you, your spiritual children and your spiritual grandchildren forever. And that's the church. Verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My Spirit who is on you, my words that I put in your mouth, will not depart from your mouth. And that's a great thing right there. But if you got children, you want your children to be believers too, right? My spirit will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children. And if you got great grandchildren, this is great too, or from the mouths of your children's children, says the Lord. 
from now on forever. You know, there are many times in the Scriptures, especially when God is talking to David or to one of his descendants, where he says, if you will keep my word, there will never lack a man of your descendants to be on the throne. It's a transactional, it's a conditional promise. It's a covenant that says, if you do this, then I will do that. Over and over and over. But this is not a conditional promise. This is, just a, this is all on God. This is flat out all on God. There is no if here. This is not an if then. Jesus has entered the story in order to save it. That's Isaiah 59. Isaiah 60 in your studies you'll see it's all about the Savior. Isaiah 61 is all about the Savior. Verse 1 of Isaiah 61. The the Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn. Our own jewel trail is on the archaeological dig in Nazareth, uh, even as we speak. And Jesus said this in Nazareth. He said this in the synagogue. He got up to speak. They handed him the Torah. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And what is salvation? But good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. That's salvation. To proclaim liberty to the captives, those who have been captivated by their sin. This passage is fulfilled in our salvation. We've seen our sin. We've seen our Savior. We've seen our salvation. Many years ago, I served on the Murfreesboro City Council. And I I served with a... um, um, really a great group of people that I came to respect and one of those people was a fellow by the name of John Pittard if you're over on the west side of town you may see the John Pittard Elementary School named after him the Homer Pittard Campus School is named after his father Uh, John um, was uh, he was a good man to serve alongside and he was very patient with me. I was just a young rookie and I didn't know what was going on. And uh, we were considering building a city building. And I could look at the architectural plans and I could, say, I could see, wow, this is gonna be a beautiful building. And so the question is, where are we gonna locate this in, in our beautiful city of Murfreesboro? And, and I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe we should be on the corner of this street and that street because that, that area is really nice, kind of seems to fit. And he said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And I said, John, why wouldn't we put it there? It's, it's, it's already a beautiful location. And he said, that's it. It's a beautiful location. We don't want to tear up something that's already beautiful. We want to look for a place in town that's kind of ugly kind of run down need some help I said John why would we do that he said well it's it's kind of like a twofer you're you're removing a blight and you're replacing it with something beautiful okay 
Well, I began to see that, and over the course of the years, I actually saw that happen several times in Murfreesboro. I saw a place that had suffered some urban blight, and it was replaced with a beautiful building, and I eventually came to see that that's a pretty good picture of salvation. We're pretty ugly. We're urban blight. Maybe we're rural blight. But we're pretty ugly. And God comes in and He puts a brand new building where an old ugly building used to be. It's kind of a twofer. And yesterday we were... I was out in the yard and I had a lot of help. and I was trying to get ready for Justin and Bethany's party. And, and oh boy, did we have a wild week. The well went out. Couldn't water the yard. The ponds were dry. Couldn't put water in the ponds. And, uh, and then we had a couple trees that had to come down because they were dead. So the tree guys came out and took down two trees that had kind of been the focal point of the backyard. They were, at one point in time, they were very pretty trees, but they were dead. They had to go. And so those trees were removed. And yesterday morning, about 9 o'clock, I'm looking at what used to be a fairly decent uh, place in the yard. And, and now it's, um, it's just ugly. There's two tree stumps. Uh, you got that picture up there, Wes? Thank you. Um, and that's what that looked like at 9.30 yesterday morning. Well, with the help of some very good friends and um, Martin's home, home goods, um, this is what it looked like three hours later. You got it? And I'm thinking, that's a pretty good picture of the gospel. Something that's dead, rotten, ugly, not much to look at. And God comes in by His savings grace, saving grace turns it into something beautiful. That's what Jesus does. Jesus enters the story and takes that ugly scene and turns it into something of beauty. Our sin, completely whipped by our Savior, bringing us salvation, our salvation. And this is what happens when sin versus the Savior. Savior wins. Let's pray.